I want to take just five minutes to really recap last week. Um, because we looked last week from um, the human perspective. We looked at some of the practical points of the, the message last week. And today I want to recap what some of the spiritual takeaways from some of the uh, scriptures that we read. And we only read a handful of scriptures last week. Uh, so if you're taking notes, this might be a good time to take notes on some of the passages that we read. Again, we're in the Song of Solomon. Um, I'd like for us to be reading from the NIV during this series. And so your, your pew Bibles are NIV if your personal Bible is not. And uh, we're in page um, 668 in your pew Bibles. All right, so I want to just, again, recap just a few verses really quickly, and then we're going to dive into today's message. So last week was all about um, the art of attraction. And so we covered a few things. Verse 2 says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. And so the idea in this verse, the spiritual significance and takeaway from this verse is that we, we have to long. And there is the idea of longing for the intimacy with our king in Jesus. There is a desire and a longing that we must have. In verse 3, it says, pleasing is the fragrance of your perfume. Your name is like perfume poured out. And in this scripture, we have to take away, it is the character of Jesus that is of the highest quality, of the highest standard, like those designer perfumes you might buy. It is of this high quality and standard, and we should strive, beloved, to want to be close to him so that we can be close to that pleasing fragrance of his aroma because of his high quality and standard of excellence. Amen. Verse 4 says, take me away. The king has brought me into his chambers. I don't know about you, but I long to go into the inner chamber of the king. I long to go into his sanctuary so that I can be in this close uh, relationship. And it is of such great value to me, and I hope that it is to you, that we long to be in his inner chamber. Verse 5 and 6, she starts out in the verse by saying, I am dark, but I am lovely. Now, y'all got to catch this because this is, this kind of really summed it up last week. There is an idea in this scripture that we are creatures of sin, and so we too are dark. But watch this. I love how it is, but God here, through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, sees us as his flawless and beautiful bride. And he says in the scripture that there is no one else for me but you. And so we too ourselves should see us. We should see the church and we should see ourselves individually the way God sees us through the righteousness of Jesus. Why? Because we have been rescued, we have been redeemed, and we have been restored. Can somebody say amen? Amen. 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 All right, so that was our recap for last week. I told you I didn't want to spend a lot of time on that because I'm trying to move forward in this scripture. And so today, we're going to start our reading, and we're just going to pray here really quickly before we do. We're going to start our, our scriptural reading um, in verse 7 today. So if you're not already there, Song of Solomon chapter 1, we're going to start our reading in verse 7. But let us pray before we do. Father, I thank you so much for this great privilege and opportunity to share the truth of your scripture. God, I pray that you just bring out all of the amazing beauty and the nuances of this love poetry. 
that it will touch our hearts today and it will begin to prick us and transform us and move us uh, to be more conformed and transformed into your image. And so we thank you and we praise you and the people of God say amen. Again, as you know I like to do, we're going to read through the passage. Then we're going to come back. We're going to dissect it, scripture at a time, and we're going to give you the connection. Amen? All right, here we go. Again, reading from the Song of Solomon, we're going to read chapter 1 starting in verse 7. And it says, here, this is the woman. This is the female voice. And if you're using the Pew Bible, you will see it tells you who is speaking. And so this is the woman in verse 7, and she says, Tell me, you whom I love, where you graze your flock and where you rest your sheep at midday. Why should I be like the veiled women beside the flocks of your friends? In verse 8, it says, If you don't know, most beautiful of women, follow the tracks of the sheep and graze your young goats by the tents of the shepherd. Like you, the lover says, like you, my darling, to a mare harnessed to one of the chariots of Pharaoh. Your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make you earrings of gold studded with silver. While the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. My lover is to me a satch of myrrh resting between my breasts. My lover is to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of En-Gedi. 15. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes are like doves. How handsome you are, my lover. Oh, how charming. And our bed is verdant. 17, the lover responds, the beams of our house are cedar, our rafters are firs. And in chapter 2, we're just going to read a few passages here, down to verse 7. Chapter 2, the beloved writes, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valley, like a lily among thorns, my darling, among the maidens. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my lover among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. He has taken me to the banquet hall, and his inner banner over me is love. Strengthen me with raisins. Refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. His left arm is under my head and his right arm embraces me. In the last verse here, in verse 7. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the ones of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Thank you, Lord, for the reading and revelation of your word. Amen. All right. So again, as I said, we're going to, now that we've read it, let's dissect it. Let's unpack this scripture and find the beauty and the nuances of this scripture here. All right, let's start again in verse 7 of chapter 1. Now, there's three points that I'm going to wrap up at the end that uh, I'm not really going to mention because I want you to see it as it's evolving, and then we'll recap those main points at the end. But here in verse 7, we're seeing something very interesting. In verse 7, we see that the woman is directed... To the lover, and she says to her lover, the king, 
she says that he is the one who her soul loves. And she's asking him in this scripture to expedite the process of her finding him. Again, she says in the scripture, she says, where do you graze your flock and where you rest your sheep midday? She's saying, listen, we got to invest this time, but listen, time is short. So help me expedite the process of finding you. Tell me exactly where I can find you. Tell me where you rest midday. Why is she asking? She's asking because she doesn't want to look a certain way. Can you imagine a woman in the fields all by herself, surrounded by men, how that would appear, just wandering around searching for her lover? She doesn't want to have the appearance of impropriety. She doesn't want to have that appearance. And this is why in the scripture, she says to us to help you connect what she's saying, when she says, why should I look like the veiled women? She's referring to the the, the cult prostitutes that would venture out into the fields and make their living with the men in the fields, if y'all understand what I'm saying today. She says, my king, don't make me look that way. Help me expedite this process of finding you so that we can get to our time of intimacy. And so the, the lover actually responds here, and they respond in an interesting way. He says, and I'm going to kind of paraphrase it a little bit. He's saying, listen, I'm going to help you find me. All you need to do is follow the goat path. Follow the goat path that I have laid out for you and you will find me. And when you do, we will be able to enjoy each other's company. We will be able to enjoy each other's presence but just follow the goat path. And then it tells you here in this scripture, it says that you will be able to rest yourself and your goats by the tents. You know, in the the Old Testament, the word here used for tents is the exact same word for tabernacle. And he's saying, because I'm going to wrap this up, let me give you the connection here with these two verses here. The connection is the king is saying to his beloved, he's saying, listen, I do not care about your past. I don't care where you're coming from. I want to tell you that I think that you are the most beautiful woman in the world. There is no bride more beautiful in this scripture. And he goes on further to say, again, I'm paraphrasing so that you can capture this. He says, I'm going to go one step further. In case you don't know, let me tell you how to find me so that when you do find me, we can enjoy each other's company. And then I will give you, as we are enjoying each other's company, I will give you a green pasture from which you will never, ever have need. What's that mean for us? Jesus is calling us because we are his bride, we are his beloved. And Jesus is saying, all you have to do is follow the goat path, the path of the sheep that I have already laid out for you. Just follow it and you will find me. And when you find me, we'll be together. And let me give you a New Testament term. He says, you will never hunger and you will never thirst. 
And this is the, the connection in this scripture. And in verse 9, again, the, the woman in verse 9 picks up again. Remember, this is an ebb and flow. This is this symphonic back and forth between the two lovers. In verse 9, the woman says, she uses a word. Some of your versions may be a little different. But she says, my loved or my dearest or my darling. And it's one of the central themes of this entire book is the 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 connection that they have and in this word if you break it down you'll understand that this has a connection in the Hebrew of guarding of tending to and of caring for but in the word in the meaning of the word there's an emphasis on enjoyment of the process that the the the, the beloved is enjoying the king tending to her. And so the king too is enjoying the caring and the tending to and the loving and the guarding of his bride. And then he goes on to do something interesting. And gentlemen, I don't recommend you do this. He actually compares her to a barnyard animal. (laughs) Gentlemen, (laughs) I don't recommend this, okay? But in, 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 in Hebrew poetry, this made sense because they were an agricultural society and they understood these references and he calls her a mare, which if you don't know, that's a female horse, right? I can't get away with that at home. I'm not going to try. <laughs> but he calls her <clears throat> a mare. Now, here's the significance When he calls her a mare, I want to read the scripture because I want you to catch this. He says, you are, my darling, you are a mare harnessed to one of the chariots of Pharaoh. Now, what's interesting is if you understand near Middle East, uh, near East culture, in the Egyptian culture, um, uh, that breed of horses was one of the most uh, uh, desired and most quality breeds of horses that you could ever imagine. And so he's connecting her not just to that breed of horses, but he's connecting her to the royal breed, which makes it the best of the best. Are y'all catching this today? And so he's saying to his bride, he's saying, I'm comparing you to the best. You are the absolute best of the best. Now, if you ever take a a mare around some royal stallions, you just watch and see the type of excitement that happens. Okay? And so he's saying, listen, not only am I comparing and connecting your beauty to the best of the best of our culture, but watch this. You excite me that you arouse excitement within me. And so there is this beautiful connection in this one verse. And so here's the connection. See, we are Jesus's bride. And Jesus tells us, me and you, he says, you are beautiful. And I consider you to be the best. In Genesis, in the beginning, God said everything was good. But when he got to us, He said that we were very good. He said that we were beautiful in the very beginning. And God is helping to bring that and draw that out in this scripture that we are beautiful. And he enjoys the idea. He enjoys the process calling us his love, his darling of guarding us, of caring for us. He takes great pleasure in doing so. 
Now he goes on to talk about the bridle. Now, I'm not, I don't know much about horses, but I did a lot of research on this, and I thought this to be fascinating. One day I'll get a little horse. It's not a pony. It's a small horse. One day I'll get one. Rosa says those things have weight limits, but I'm, I think I'm going to get one. <laughs> but here, watch how, he, um, watch how he adorns her with this visual. In, in verse 10, he says, your cheeks are beautiful with earrings and your neck with strings of jewels. See, the bridles that they, especially with the royal horses, the bridles that they used to put on these horses were, were just elaborately decorated in those days with jewels and these fancy precious metals and leathers and all kinds of beautiful decoration. And so what the lover is doing is he's transferring in this scripture to his beloved the imagery of these beautiful decorations. And so the beauty of her face is natural, but what he's saying is these things enhance your beauty. And in verse 11, he actually tells her something special. He says, watch this in verse 11, he says, we will make you earrings. So this is very special to her. See, the bridles are for most of them, but the earrings are specifically for her. He says, we're making you something very special. And I don't want you to miss this. The emphasis is not on the bridle. The emphasis is not on the earrings, but the emphasis here in this scripture is the, not the attractiveness of the ornaments, although they are significant. The point here is that these Two items enhance her beauty. Are y'all catching this today? It's enhancing her beauty. Here's the connection. As I said to you, God said that we were beautiful in Genesis. God said that we were very good. He says, I love you the way I created you. You are beautiful. Just y'all got to pay attention because some of y'all need to catch this today. I love you exactly the way I made you in my likeness and in my image. But watch this. When I bless you with the ornaments of the gift of the spirit, the fruit of the spirit, watch how beautiful you become. Watch how much I enhance what I have already created when I adorn you with the fruit of the Spirit. When I adorn you with my Spirit, your natural beauty is simply enhanced. Can you imagine what great enjoyment we would experience in our relationship, both vertically and horizontally, if we captured this, if we grasped this concept, and if we internalized that God thinks we're beautiful, and he gave us the fruit of his spirit to enhance our beauty. Christ loved decorating us with his righteousness, and it just makes us and enhances our beauty. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to step out on a limb. She hates this. I'm going to embarrass Rosa again. I'm so crazy about Rosa, my beautiful bride, and I've only gotten as crazy, I've always been crazy 22 years or so we've been together, I've only gotten as crazy as I am for her today because God enhanced her beauty with the fruit of the Spirit. Amen. Amen. He enhanced her beauty. I always thought she was beautiful, and I've always thought she was the most beautiful woman ever created. But when God came into our life, and I'll tell you this, I think I shared this with you a little bit, honey. When God came into our life and he adorned her with his righteousness and he adorned her with his, the fruit of his spirit and all that came with it, 
wow. How could I not chase her around the house? Amen. 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 All right. Now, there's an interesting transition that happens here in the scripture between verse 11 and 12 that I don't want you to miss. And we could very easily read past it, right? In this early part of the scripture, we see the reference of the shepherd, right? There's the shepherd. And then immediately when we transition to verse 12, there's a reference to the king. Now, I need you all to catch this because this is vitally important to understand this message and for us to catch, uh, um, catch this in the right way. The beloved here, the woman, has to follow the path to meet the shepherd so that they enjoy each other's company and be blessed so that she, not he, so that she can be blessed. Watch this, beloved. You got to receive Jesus as the humble shepherd before you can see him as king. Are y'all catching me today? If you are not willing to catch God and receive him as the humble shepherd, you will never see him as king. See, because so many of us, we want the king, because what does the king have? He's got, he's got all the stuff, right? Everything belongs to the king. But what belongs to the shepherd? The sheep and the dung and everything and the mess and everything that comes with it. And so, see, the world doesn't want the shepherd. The world wants the king, and they want to skip that and go right to his glory. No, beloved, you got to see this transition. Before you can get to the king, you must receive the shepherd and the, the burdens that he bared and his willingness to lay down his life for his sheep. Are y'all hearing me today? Amen. Amen. All right. That was a very important point that I just wanted to make sure that you caught. Now, how do we know this? How do we see this? And how do we see that the woman here was willing to receive the shepherd before she received the king? Look at verse 7 again where she says, my soul, my darling, my dearest. Remember, there's the idea in that that you are my everything. I give myself to you, my heart, my mind, my body, my soul. I give you everything. And she was ready to receive him as shepherd, and we see this transition to the king. Now look at verse 12. Verse 12 is, is important. In verse 12, it talks about a royal banquet table. Now in the scripture, there's no indication, and I love the intimacy of the scripture here, there's no indication that there is anyone else sitting at that banquet table. None. It just says the king was at his table. Don't you see? Are you, are you catching that God wants to receive us individually in the privacy and the intimacy at his table so that he can enjoy a relationship with us? So that he can enjoy our time together. And you got to catch this. Even in our own relationships, we got to see the importance and the connection in this. It blew my mind as I was examining this and I saw these great revelations in Scripture. And then we go on. We're going to see about three different perfumes, and they're all very important, and they have significance. Now, there is a bit of, um, there's a romantic and an erotic undertone in this scripture, in these next few scriptures, which, which I'm going to skip over because I, I don't, I really think it takes away from the main point. But, but as you examine this, you'll see this romantic and erotic overtone. But let me explain to you a little bit about these perfumes and their importance and significance. 
So immediately following in verse 12, it says, my perfume spread its fragrance. I think the word perfume that's used there, it's really simplified. Um, the, it really simplifies the Hebrew word for it. It's really a nard, right? It's, a, it's an anointing oil, which was very expensive. And this oil, it's understood that it comes and it's derived from the plants that come from India. And so these oils were very sought after. They were very expensive. Only the richest had them. And so she's assigning to herself this amazing perfume and this oil because it's this great love potion that she's wearing. Then you see in this scripture, in the very next scripture, you see her talking about myrrh. Now, myrrh's not uncommon to us. We understand myrrh. We've heard it. We read it a lot in scripture, particularly in the Old Testament. <coughs> Excuse me. And myrrh is just, it's, it's a resin. It's a resinous gum, uh, if you will. You see it in scripture in different forms. You see it in liquid form. But in this context, She's talking about this myrrh in its solid form. And so what they would do is they would put the myrrh in the pouches and wear it close to their body so that their body heat and their sweat would, would, would absorb and soak into that, that myrrh and would, would release the fragrance. There was actually the song of Harper's. It's an Egyptian song where it actually mentions in this song, that what they would do is they would actually take the myrrh, they would mix it with, with fat, with lard, they would shape it into these cones, and during these festivities, they would actually place it on the, someone's head so that the body heat would melt the fat, and it would, it would begin to create this um, aromatic effect of the myrrh. And so this woman here is, is helping to illustrate um, this, this sense of, I want you close to me. I want to hold you close. She says, I want to hold you close to my, to my breast, my bosom, in the same way that I would hold this satchel of myrrh so that what? So that you would see and smell me and I can see and receive and smell you and it's this great sweetness that we're experiencing together. And then she goes on to talk, to, uh, talk about a henna plant which this henna plant, I won't go too much into this. It's a common shrub. The point is that this woman is using these similes to express the sweetness of her feelings towards her lover. And how many of you want to express your sweet and tender feelings to your lover? Not just in the physical, but our lover in Christ that we want to use these aromatic fragrances. Even in the temple, in the old temple, they, they would send up incense as a pleasing aroma, as an offering to God. And so she's saying, listen, I want to give you these similes because I too want to be a pleasing aroma to you. Are y'all catching this today? Oh, your silence is telling me you're listening intently. All right. And then something interesting that really popped off the pages for me is then she talks about a garden. Now, I didn't realize this, and I really had to do some digging, but she talks about a lush oasis. It's not a metaphor. It's not a simile. This is an actual place. It's a place called Engedi. It's actually a place in Israel. And this is a place that she refers to, and it's known to be an oasis and a natural reserve in Israel. It's actually just along um, the, the west of the Dead Sea. 
And so for millennia, travelers have gone there to enjoy this amazing garden, this amazing oasis that's filled with tropical and subtropical plants. And there is a lot of um, exotic spices that come from this area. There is a lot of, um, of the, the, the products of that region are actually used, even till this day, to produce a lot of cosmetics and perfumes. And it's amazing how in this, in the same way that the lover demonstrated um, the connection with her being the best of the best, when he says, you're like the mayor, now he's associating the best of the best to her. He's saying that you are like this amazing garden. Actually, the garden is called the place of wild goats. That's actually what the name means, place of wild goats. And so the girl is returning her lover's compliment by telling him, your garden is the best of the best. Fellas, wouldn't you like to hear that? Wouldn't you like to hear your lady tell you just that word? You're the best of the best, babe. I wouldn't trade you for anything. All right, now let's look at the next five verses. We're going to kind of group these verses together because... These verses, I'll point out a few things, but these next five verses is just a rapid-fire exchange of compliments. This is just an exchange between the lovers where these five verses, they're bantering back and forth, and it ultimately leads to this monologue, which we're going to see and starting in verse 3 of chapter 2. But I do want to point out just a few things as we go through this. And so... Um, in this text here in verse, uh, we're going to start, uh, where are we? In verse five or 15 rather he says there's this imagery again this agricultural imagery he says that he refers to her eyes are like doves now I, I didn't really connect that at first that's not cute ladies would you would you dig that if your husband says your eyes are like doves right but what he's talking about is that the beauty of the dove's eyes their grayness and their fullness of the dove's eyes are beautiful and that's what he's connecting her to again this is him paying her compliments and loving on her attributing all of this goodness to her she does the same thing she says how charming he is he talks about their house together probably a small house something intimate and in verse 1 of chapter 2, watch what she says. She says, I'm a common flower. I'm going to let that sit with you for a moment. The woman says, I'm nothing more than a common flower. Because that's what these are. The rose of Sharon and the lilies of the valley are like common flowers. They're everyday flowers. There's nothing exceptional about them. And so the woman, ladies, y'all got a habit of doing this. She says, I'm not that special. But watch this. You do this too, Rosa. And, and this is how I respond to you too. This guy is smooth. Watch this, fellas. Take note how smooth this guy is. Watch how he flips her comment on its head. I mean, this brother's got some swag, I'm going to tell you. Watch this. Watch what he says. She says, look, it, I'm nothing special, honey. I'm just like these common flowers. But watch this. He says, again, take notes, fellas. He says, honey, you're right. You know what? You are a common flower. But check this out, honey. You're a common flower amongst thorns. Whoa. 
Think about that. I said fire. <laughs> Amen. He says, you're a common flower among thorns. He's saying that in comparison to the daughters of Israel, you're a beautiful flower and they're simply thorns. Has anyone ever thought of a thorn to be cute? Never. No one in your life, no one here has ever thought that a, a bush of thorns was beautiful. And he says, honey, your beauty stands out amongst the, the, the dryness and the harshness of those thorns. He just flips it on its head. And this is exactly how Christ sees the church. Catch this, guys. This is how Christ sees the church. He sees us as this small flower in the field. And yes, as believers, we are small in the church. We are small in number compared to the other uh, religions and denominations in total. We are a small number, and Christ sees us that way. And so he says, my beloved, my church, my people, you are like this wildflower, and yes, you may seem common, but you stand amongst a world of thorns, amongst a world of harshness that is dry, it is just lifeless. You stand among beautiful among the thorns. That when we are these beautiful flowers amongst thorns, Jesus, let me give you maybe some New Testament references. He says that you are the light in a dark world, or he says you are the uh, preserving salt in a decaying world. Can y'all catch this today? But he says you are unique amongst all of the darkness and harshness. Okay, let's continue to transition into the verse three. And there's a few things that I want to point out here uh, in this verse, in these few verses. Again, um, I'm going to skip. Again, there's a lot of reference. You can read it and study it for yourself. There's a lot of romantic and erotic references here, but that's not really the point. We covered that uncomfortable stuff last week. And so today we want to focus on what's really God trying to speak into our hearts today and what's he trying to tell us in our life. Verse 3 is a powerful verse that I want you to connect because even though there is that romantic and erotic imagery which isn't necessary, there's a beautiful image here in verse 3 which I'm going to break down for you which paints in the text in a poetic and a beautiful way what is given to believers upon acceptance of Christ. Now watch this. I'm going to go word for word here. The first point in this scripture is she says, I sat down. And what do we get from that? We see that there is a union with Christ where we, when you're sitting down, I'm not exerting any effort here. I'm at rest sitting here on stage. She says, I am sitting down with you, my king. I am at rest. This is the first thing that we experience as believers that I think God wants us to draw out of this scripture. The second part is, she says, with great delight here. With great delight. Or I delight in the NIV. See, as believers, we have great joy in Jesus. We have great joy in our intimate 
one-on-one relationship with Christ as believers. She says that she is in his shadow in this, this verse, in this scripture. She enjoys being sitting in his shadow. Beloved, thank you, Jesus, that you provide us with shelter from the heat and the, the weather that the world can pour upon us. The fourth thing is she says, sweet to my taste or the fruit is sweet to my taste. Christ gives us ample sustenance. Christ gives us so much. The Greek word for taste is actually palate. It means palate. It refers to the mouth, the lips, the tongue, the whole mouth. And what's interesting when I read this is that it, the derivative, the root word for palate actually is the same root word for discipline and training. Great revelation. And so you know what they used to do back in those times? They actually used to take honey when they were teaching and training their kids. They would take honey and anoint their lips with honey so that training and discipline was sweet. So that instruction was always associated with sweetness. And so we see in the scripture that we, the, the, the beloved wants to enjoy the sweetness of her king, of her shepherd, and she wants to receive the goodness of his instruction. Verse 4, some of these are pretty simple and self-explanatory. I won't spend a whole lot of time diving into them. Verse 4, we see the flying of a banner. <clears throat> I know, and know any of you who have been in the military, you understand, a banner is about possession. A banner is about connection. When you fly or ride under someone's banner, you are connected to them by that banner. She says that I am under your banner of love. That she is saying, "I'm, I'm connected to you, you are covering me, and we are riding together under the banner of your great love. Ladies, gentlemen, You run under the banner, ladies, you run under the banner of your husband's great love. As he runs under the great love banner of Christ, as the scripture tells us. Verse 5, she says, sustain me. Refresh me. In chapter 2, she says, sustain me. Strengthen me. Refresh me. Now again, the raisins and the apples have this romantic, erotic connotation, but that's not the point. So don't get focused and lost in the apples and the raisins. Okay, please. Don't get lost in the apples and the raisins. But what she's saying here, has anybody ever been in a moment of worship and praise with God and that it was so powerful, the the anointing fell so heavy upon you. If you understand what I'm talking about, you can raise your hand, let me know. But the anointing fell so heavy upon you, you had to actually pray, God, sustain me and strengthening me because your anointing, your presence is too much for me to handle, God. It's too much. And this lover is giving us the same indication that, that, that my king, the love of my king is too much and I need you to strengthen me and sustain me. I need you to uphold me because I'm lovesick. How many of you are lovesick for God today? I'm lovesick for God. Baby, I know you know this. I love him more than you. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. I love him more than you. I'm lovesick for God, and we should do that. And this love poetry is, is asking us not only to be lovesick over our, our, our husbands and our wives, but to be lovesick over God. All right. Verse 6 is very straightforward. 
But watch how he holds her. Verse 6 says that he held me. And I want you, I'm going to take this slow because this is intimate. This is romantic and it's beautiful. And I want you to connect this to how God wants to hold you too. It says here that his left arm is holding my head and that his right arm embraces me. Now listen, if he's holding her head, he ain't holding her like this, guys. Okay? Are y'all catching this? This is a moment of intimacy where they are in each other's arms and he is holding her and gazing upon her beauty and staring into her eyes as he holds her and embraces her with his right arm and they are in this connection. And God, I, I want to be in that connection with you. Lord, I, I just desire today that you will hold our head in that intimate way, that, you will, that we will see ourselves as your bride in that way. Are y'all seeing this today? The beauty of this intimacy? All right, let's continue. And finally, in verse 7, and then we're going to wrap all of this up. In verse 7, something interesting happens because it's like the, the, the scene stopped right away. Before it got too hot, before it got too heavy and intense, the scene stopped, okay? And that seems kind of abrupt, right? Well, what's going on here? You were just holding me, you had my head, you were embracing me, and then stop. Watch what it says. In seven, it says, daughters of Jerusalem, I beg you, I charge you by the gazelles and the, the does of the field, don't arouse or awaken love until it's so desired. She's saying, wait, I can't do this. It's too intense. I want my relationship to remain holy. It's not time yet. She says, and this is going to happen, we're going to see this. This happens in chapter 4, right, where they, we get to the climax of the books, where they finally get to be together. She's like, hold on, wait. I beg you, don't awaken and arouse love. God, there's the, guys, there's this idea of holiness in this scripture. There's this idea that we must remain in a holy, consecrated relationship with God so that we can truly enjoy the beauty of our relationship, which we're going to see in the text later in the last week. We'll examine this in chapter 4, but we got to preserve our holiness. The woman stops. She says, no, we can't do this. I don't want to ruin the beauty of our intimacy by doing it outside of the institution of marriage that you've given us, God. I don't want to ruin it. And God doesn't want you to ruin the beauty of your relationship by going and defiling yourself with sin. By defiling yourself, you fill in the blank. Whatever it is for you, God does not want you to defile the beauty of your relationship with him by engaging in activities that will defile you, that will make you unpure and unholy. So stop. When you're in the embrace, and sometimes we're in the embrace of the wrong lover, sometimes we're in the embrace of the lover of sin, you fill in the blank, whatever it is. Whatever that sin is, you're in that embrace and you're about to defile yourself. Stop. 
Don't awaken passion. Don't awaken desire until it's time. This idea of remaining holy and exercising restraint. It's important. All right. I want to wrap up today. Um, In a moment, I'll have, uh, if they can actually get ready, uh, Derek and the worship team. Derek, you got that last song for us, brother? Amen. Um, Derek's going to play a song for us here in a moment. But I want to give you the three takeaways today from the scripture. And I alluded to them as we were going. But in this scripture, there are three main takeaways. One is that in order for us to understand the art of relationship and the three factors that are important in our relationship, we have to invest the time. See, these, these lovers in the early scripture, the woman said, just tell me where I can find you. Help me to expedite our love. We have to invest the time. She wasn't in a rush. She wasn't trying to uh, uh, avoid the process of the relationship. But she says, can we skip through all of the nonsense of me going through the hills and all this, that? Can we just get to investing in our time together? If we're going to have a successful relationship, both vertically and horizontally, we must invest time. Rosa can tell you, I invest, and I ask you to invest. She she doesn't see me half the time because I'm, I'm like, I'm chained in my chair, aren't I, honey? In studying and in prayer and investing and getting to know my God better. Because I want a better relationship. I want to know his heart. And if you want to know the heart of your person, the person that you're with, how can you do it without investing the time? And the same applies to God. So many of us struggle and we say, well, I don't know God's heart and I don't know what he wants because you're not spending enough time with him. If you just pause and say, God, let me hear you. Stop talking. Stop praying. And just listen. And God will share with you an intimate moment. Number two is that we have to cultivate respect in that relationship, in that ebb and flow, that back and forth of the exchange. You're beautiful, baby. No, you're beautiful. No, you're beautiful. No, you're beautiful. So they were cultivating this mutual respect between one another as God wants us to cultivate that same respect with him as he says, you are beautiful, my beloved children. I made you in my image and in my likeness and you are beautiful. And so we too should elevate a praise of this mutual respect for God and say, God, no, you're beautiful. You're great and you're glorious. I give you back the respect that you are so due and so entitled. And then the third thing is that, again, we have to cultivate this restraint. As we read in this last scripture in verse 7 of chapter 2, there was an exercise of restraint. The woman said, no, as much as I want it, as much as it's, it feels good to my body, I'm going to say no, because I don't want to defile myself. And as much sometimes as our sin, our stuff, you fill in the blank, it's, it's different for all of us. As much as sometimes it feels really good to our flesh, you know it's going to defile you. You know it's not good for you. And what you're going to do is you're going to feel really bad about it later. And you're going to go through this cycle, right? Oh, I feel bad. Oh, I got to repent. Oh, God loves me again. And you keep going through this cycle. No, just exercise restraint, beloved, and enjoy the holiness and the purity of your relationship. And finally, that was the last point. 
Um, but the point of all of this is that Christ came to restore. He came, there's references that we'll see over and over again, this beautiful imagery and this love poetry to a garden, to a vineyard. Why do we keep seeing this image? Because God came and has a desire to restore, and it's been his plan from the very beginning to restore the garden so we can walk in intimacy with us, so that he could restore relationships, not only between him and us, but between us. He came to restore these relationships between men and women, husband and wives. Why he came so that we could love more deeply, that we can love more intimately, that we could understand that we can be completely transparent with one another and so that we can feel comfortable, not literally, but we can feel comfortable being naked again. Don't y'all come in here naked. That's not a good thing. (laughs) But that we can be naked before God again. Remember in the beginning when they sinned? They were afraid of their nakedness. They were ashamed of it. And God says, don't be afraid of your nakedness. Be naked and transparent with me so that I can love you and be in the same intimate garden relationship that I started. And he wants that for you. He wants that for your marriage. He wants that intimacy where you're not afraid to be naked, both physically, spiritually, and emotionally with one another. And some of us are so hardened, we're not willing to do it with each other, and we're certainly not going to do it with God. But he came to break down all of those barriers for us today, guys. And I hope that today my prayer as we close is I pray that we can continue to connect more deeply not only across this church, but at home, that you can connect more deeply with your husband and wives, with your children. If you're, if you're not married, maybe your fiance or your boyfriend and girlfriend, that we can continue to connect more deeply.